Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Brody Longmere and Habo Chen. This week we'll be discussing the Ford government's repeal of the Green Energy Act and the future of energy policy in Ontario. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. It has been a year and a half since the Ford government was elected in the province of Ontario, promising during their campaign to lower skyrocketing electricity rates for Ontario ratepayers. Electricity costs remain high, but since the Ford government has taken office, they began scrapping energy contracts and repealing the Green Energy Act that invested heavily in alternative renewable energy methods that emitted much lower amounts of carbon. Since then, arguments about the controversial act that many blame for Ontario's high hydro rates have debated the value of that act. Was the Green Energy Act forging a new future for Ontario's energy sector, or will Premier Ford's decision to repeal be the saving grace for Ontario's ratepayers? What is the future of energy policy in Ontario, and can ratepayers expect improvements in the years ahead? Our first guest is Bruce Party, a professor of law from Queen's University. Professor Party's research and scholarship have been focused in the areas of environmental law and governance, ecosystem management, climate change, civil liability, tort, and property theory, university governance, constitutional and human rights, and the rule of law. He is a member of the board of directors for the Energy Probe Research Foundation. Thank you for joining us, Professor Party. Earlier this year, Premier Ford eliminated the Green Energy Act that was implemented under the former Liberal government. For our listeners that may not have a good understanding of the Act, can you give us an overview of what that Act was? Yes, so what, what the Ford government did is actually did is not what it pretended to do. The original Liberal bill from 2009 was actually called the Green Energy and Green Economy Act, and the Green Energy Act was a piece of that bill. And many of the provisions uh, set up the program for renewable energy contracts, the FIT program, and, and so on. And during the election, the Ford government uh, promised to get rid of that regime. And they did, in fact, repeal that piece of the larger act, the Green uh, Energy Act. But the effect of what they did was not to eliminate all the pieces of that regime. And in fact, some of the sections, some of the provisions in that act were reenacted as part of other acts. So the regime that now exists, uh, it, it is still possible for a government, whether this one or a future government, to, to rebirth uh, the FIT program, if they so chose, the FIT program itself, the feed and tariff program, was actually halted by the Liberals around 2016 before the Ford government got into power. So, in my opinion, what the Ford government did with its bill was largely symbolic. There may have been a few things here and there which were helpful, uh, but for the most part, it wasn't as much of a wholesale change as they made out to be. 
Okay. Now, Rex Murphy called the act, quote, one of the most monumental government follies of our time, unquote. Do you agree with this characterization? Yes. Yes, I do. I think that's fair. I, it, it has created a huge financial problem in the, in the electricity sector in Ontario. It has caused, in large part, the enormous bills that both residents and companies now pay for power in Ontario. Uh, it was pursued in the name of climate change, I think, but I think that that whole idea is illusory, a fiction. It doesn't, it doesn't help reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. It uh, is an intermittent power, so it requires backup, which are largely gas power, power plants. The electricity sector in Ontario, according to my friends at the Fraser Institute, who have done a lot of good work on this, constitute about 3%. 3% of Ontario's greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions. So let's just put that in context. If you are embarking on a renewable energy program with the purpose of reducing carbon emissions from the electricity sector, and let's say you're wildly successful and you manage to reduce the emissions in that sector by, let's say, 25%. Okay, well, it's 25% of 3% of Ontario's share of Canada which is 1.5%. So it's 1.5%, let's say a third of 1.5% times 3% times, times a quarter. I mean, that's n not measurable. I mean, who cares? That's, it's completely irrelevant. And so you have all of this activity and all this expense and uh, a lot of debt and a lot of, of uh, hardship for, for uh, ratepayers for nothing. Well, that was the question I was going to ask you because I noticed a lot of the uh, debate around the effectiveness of the act surrounded whether it was implemented successfully. Would you say the implementation was unsuccessful or that the policies contained within the act themselves were unsuccessful or unnecessary to begin with? Oh, there may have been implementation problems, but the, it is the, it's the underlying policy. It's the whole idea. The whole idea was a terrible thought from the, from the, from the start. It's caused a lot of trouble, and those troubles remain today. In spite of the present government's promises to fix the problem, the problem is not fixed. Power bills are still going up instead of down, as, as they promised during the election. The whole premise of the plan was a government-directed underwriting of a new technology. Well, it wasn't brand new, but, but the, the, the expansion of the industry uh, in Ontario, underwritten by the government. In other words, the government leading, uh, choosing the technology that would triumph, that was a disaster. And, and I think it was probably going to be a disaster right from the beginning, regardless of how you rolled it up. Right. And so I know proponents of this legislation would argue that Ontario need to make more investments into upgrading the energy grid and in particular transitioning to more renewable energy resources. Can you explain why this transition may not be as easy as the public may think? Well, not only will it not be easy, but the first question is, well, why? Why, why do you want to do that? I mean, it's... The, the renewable energy story is a bit of a sham. This, the, the, the theory is that the more renewables you have, the less greenhouse gas emissions you produce. And that's not true if your renewable energy sources are intermittent, meaning they only produce power when the wind blows or the sun shines. If that's the nature of the source, then you need backup to produce 
energy to replace it when they're not available, which means you have to build, as we've done in Ontario, gas-fired power plants, which produce emissions. Now, Ontario's main sources of electricity are nuclear and hydro, and neither one of those sources produce greenhouse gas emissions. So what is it you're trying to replace? It doesn't make any sense. Right. And, and so I guess that was, that was my additional question was going to be um, for environmentalists. Would you say kind of look somewhere else if you're trying to cut emissions? It's not really in uh, Ontario's energy sector at this time based on the fact that a lot of our energy does come from either hydro or nuclear power. Yes, as I, as I suggested earlier. Even if you accept the theory that carbon emissions are causing climate change. If you, if you accept that without question, then Ontario's electricity sector is not the place to look because, as I suggested earlier, it's only about 3% of Ontario's total. And so even if you eliminated all of the carbon emissions in that sector, you really haven't done anything. I mean, in, in, in global atmospheric terms, you can't even measure that. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. You should really choose better. Right. Now, speaking of uh, the Act and the effectiveness of the Act, I know that in previous interviews you've mentioned the idea that the energy industry received a special deal under this legislation or a kind of special treatment. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Well, the renewable energy industry did. The whole, the, the whole idea behind the, the FIT program, the feed-in tariff program, was that the government was going to pay producers of solar power in particular and wind power more money per unit of energy than that energy was worth. So in the case of solar power, solar producers were paid under FIT contracts sometimes multiple times what the same energy was being paid for the same electricity being produced by nuclear power plants or hydroelectric projects. So it was, it was a, just a pure subsidy, a, a boondoggle in many people's eyes, including my own. A giveaway, just for the purpose of being able to say, well, we have energy being produced by solar panels or wind farms. Um, and that created a gap between what government was paying and what they were taking in. And that has produced all kinds of trouble. Uh, for example, one of the major components, the major component really of hydro, well, hydroelectricity bills today is a thing called the, uh, the global adjustment, the GA. And the GA is, is the difference between what the ratepayers pay in terms of you know, per unit cost of energy, and what the government is paying out to producers of energy under these contracts. And to fill that gap, they essentially impose a tax on the, the electricity bills, and that tax is growing, and over a third of that GA is attributable to uh, the cost under these FIT contracts. So you can, you can look to that dynamic to figure out, at least in part, why electricity costs so much for the people of Ontario. Right. And just to give uh, our listeners a little bit of background as well, I know you mentioned that the FIT uh, program was cancelled actually before Premier Ford came into office. Can you give just a little bit of an idea why that was cancelled by the, the Wynn government? Well, only, only they know for sure what their rationale was, but my suspicion is that it had caused such a lot of trouble politically for them because it was producing such high 
bills for people, and and, and they went further. They they put in place this fair hydro plan, which promised a 25% reduction in in bills. Of course, that was problematic too, because the only way they had to do that was to mortgage the future and to push off the expense so that it looked as though the power was costing less. It was actually still costing the government the same. It's just that the ratepayers were paying less so that the debt was put off to uh, future ratepayers and future uh, generations. And the, the one thing that the Ford government seems to have done is to have made that plan more transparent. That that debt now actually shows up on the provincial books as opposed to being put, put away in the back corner of where no one actually sees what it is. So that change, I think, has been made, but there's no actual change to the to the debt itself or to the plan of reducing bills in the present at the expense of the future. So for defenders, there were uh, a lack of investments into the energy grid, and that was the reason ratepayers were paying such high electricity rates. Can you give us any insight into whether that was the case or it was a result of really just the FIT programs themselves? Well, let's just take a step backwards. Um, there, there, there is no, I think it's fair to say, no sector in Ontario that has a more tangled and complicated history than, than energy in Ontario. I mean, it, it goes back decades. It's been a mess for a long, long time. And one of the difficulties is that it is a sector in which the government of all stripes have exercised political control. In other words, nobody has been willing to say, you know what, this is just a good like any other. And and yes, there's going to be one system of transmission grids in the province, but otherwise it's going to be a market. So if you want to produce energy, you produce it and then you sell it to whoever wants to buy it. Nobody's ever gone there. They've made noises about it and they've pretended we have an independent system operator that supposedly runs a market. That's not a market. It's not really a market. And the whole thing, although there appear to be sort of semi-autonomous companies, even like Hydro One and uh, Ontario Power Generation, really the whole thing is a political gambit. And the government decides what's going to happen. And the government, you know, has their tight fist around the decisions about, you know, what kind of sources the power is going to come from and how much they're going to be paid and how much ratepayers are going to pay and what the debt's going to be and how it's going to be paid for. And so the whole thing has been set up to give an appearance of a market-like system, and it's really not. And that's one thing that the Ford government has not changed. Uh, For example, you may have seen in the news recently that Premier Ford, along with the premiers of, I think it was Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, were talking about promoting the idea of small nuclear reactors, which may be fine, which may be a good idea. I don't know. I don't know about the technology. But here we have the political leaders deciding that that's the technology they want to produce power. That's not the way a market works. If you really thought the market worked, you'd say transmission lines are available for anybody to use who makes power. If you can do it cheaply and sell it for a profit, then you do that. If you can do that with small nuclear reactors, then go for it. But you don't choose that technology, whether it's small nuclear reactors or wind farms or solar panels. You you let the market decide what's efficient. And if those means of producing the power are not efficient, well, then they're not ready. 
and you don't pay taxpayer money out to, to make something look like what it's not. And just on that point about governments, especially provincial governments, having that tight-fisted control, I was wondering if you could speak briefly about the role that municipalities and local residents had in resisting any sort of provincial decisions during the time when the Green Energy Act was in place. Right. So one of the major components of the green energy regime was to take planning control away from municipalities. And in fact, also to to reduce and limit the rights of residents, neighbors, people who are located in the, in the area of the proposed wind farm, for example, to object. So, for example, uh, there's a section in the Environmental Protection Act which sets a threshold. Under the, under the EPA, uh, residents uh, have certain ability to object to projects that are going to happen in their vicinity that cause environmental problems. The threshold established for renewable energy project, projects are higher than for any other kind of activity. And so when such a case comes to the tribunal, the question is different for those kinds of activities than for any other. That's just one example of the way in which the renewable energy projects are insulated from challenge. And so similarly with the municipalities. Municipalities exercise certain kinds of, of control, land use planning, zoning, that kind of thing, over what happens in their in their in their uh, within their boundaries, and for the purpose of renewable energy projects, those powers were abridged. And one of the things that the Ford government promised to do, and have to some extent done so, is to to insert municipalities back into the the, the process. Although there still exists ability on the part of the province to designate certain projects as immune from those controls. So it's a question of yes, but they have sort of gone back down that direction, but there's a big but still, which is that the ability of the province to rescind those controls is, is still in existence. Without municipalities having any sort of role to play, we did see a lot of energy contracts that went through because these municipalities weren't able to resist them. Since then, the Premier has scrapped a lot of these energy contracts, and is that something that you would say is, is a positive thing? Uh, yes, I would, but again, that those cancellations are not what they appear to be, perhaps. Most of those 700-odd contracts are solar contracts. There's only a very small number of wind farm contracts, and those contracts were, were terminated at an early stage before they were finalized. Even so, there may have been compensation payable under the contracts that were sort of in, in process, but this is not a wholesale cancellation of fit contracts that were in existence at the time that the Ford government came into power. Those contracts still exist. Recently, just in the past day or two, the Minister of the Environment has uh, cancelled the Nation Rise a wind farm uh, near Ottawa on the basis that it was presenting a danger to bats. That sounds like a good decision to me. But the one thing that the, that the Ford government has not done is to go back to the established FIT contracts and either change them or cancel them. And they are well able to do so legally. All they would need to do is to pass a statute that says that's what they're doing and defining what compensation, if any, was payable. Now, the holders of the contracts 
some of them typically say, or, or, or the supporters of this whole regime say, well, but a contract is a contract. And there are very specific terms in these contracts dealing with compensation in the event that a contract is canceled. But the proposition that those provisions would prevail is incorrect. If there is a statute that conflicts with the contract, the statute prevails. It is one of the elements of legislative supremacy. And there is a very good reason why it must be the case that a government, a new government, must be able to cancel the contracts put in place by an old government because it's necessary in order to maintain democratic legitimacy. Let's, let's put it this way. So you get elected as a government and it gives you a mandate to act in the public interest, in your view, for the next four or so years until the next election is called. So you do. You, you put statutes in place, you put regulations in place, all fine and dandy. And you also say to yourself, well, let's also make long-term contracts, let's say 20 years. And so by virtue of having these long-term contracts, our policy will now be in place, not just for the next four years, but for the next 20. The new government can come in and they can change the statute, sure. They can change the regulations, yes. But no, they can't touch these contracts. And if that is the understanding, that means that that government has now managed to undermine the democratic legitimacy of the government that followed it. If that government says to itself, oh, well, we can change the statute, but we can't change the contract because after all, it's a contract. Well, now you've just changed the rules about what a, go what a government can do. No government can limit the ability of a future government to legislate as they see fit. And so the new government, the Ford government, has the power to pass a statute that says these fit contracts made by the liberal government are either canceled or they're changed in the following way and the compensation to be payable will be X. Maybe it's zero. Maybe it's sunk costs. Maybe it's some reasonable amount that they think is appropriate. I don't know. I don't care. What I would like them to do, though, is to go back and revisit the content of those contracts and fix the cost problem because as it is right now and for some years that follow, we are paying as a province more money to those solar farms and wind farms than the power is worth. And that's one of the main reasons why power is so expensive. On that point, some critics of the Premier have argued that the scrapping of these energy contracts amounts to, and the total they give is $231 million in fees. However, in question period, the Premier said, quote, if we could cancel another $790 million and save the taxpayers, I'd do that all day long, unquote. So there was a way for the Ford government to avoid paying any of these fees by passing a statute? Yes, the, those, those contracts were cancelled at a moment in the process before they were finalized, and so it was open to them according to the contract to cancel them. They would not have required a statute to do that, so they went and proceeded to do that, but they were also compensation payable under the contract. So everything has been rolled out in accordance with the terms of the contract. That was one choice they made. The other choice they could have made is to pass a statute that says, no matter what the contracts say, we're doing the following thing. We're, we're, we're halting those contracts, and the compensation clauses that, that the contracts contain are null and void, and we will not follow them. And instead, the compensation we'll pay will be the following. Again, maybe it's zero, maybe it's sunk costs, maybe it's whatever 
they think is right. But there's no need for the terms of the contract to govern. Now, Ford also suggested that, as you as you quoted, that there were uh, some seven or eight hundred million dollars in savings. That might also be true because now you're not paying for the future cost of all that power that's overpriced. I don't know what that figure is. That might be right. I do know that there's an awful lot more of that saving to be done if you actually went fix or change or cancel the contracts that have been finalized and are now in place. And an awful lot more. I mean, an enormous amount of money, which Ontario should not be paying. Mm -hmm. Let's switch gears for a second. I wanted to speak with you about the impact that these high electricity rates and especially the Green Energy Act had in rural Ontario, especially. Just looking to see if you could give any perspective on maybe why that was the case, if that's still the case, and maybe what impact that has on the urban-rural divide in Ontario. Yeah, so I don't know the details, but I do understand that the the, the bills for rural, both residents and and companies, are extraordinary. In In some situations, extraordinarily high. The other burden for rural communities is that most of the wind farm installations are in their backyard. And I think it really is a good example of an urban-rural divide in the sense that, you know, a lot of the urban progressive elite think that this is a great idea. It's a, it's a, it's, it fits the image of a environmentally appropriate power source. It doesn't give off greenhouse gas emissions. You know, how could you be against a windmill? Well, there's an easy way to be against a windmill, and that is to be its neighbor. Some of these people in the rural areas have wind farms, which are not much more than 500 meters away from their from their homes. I've never lived in that situation, but from descriptions, it can be a living hell. These installations have been put in in spite of the objections of those neighbors and in spite of the objections of their local communities. A lot of local communities have declared themselves to be unwilling hosts of these things, and those those sentiments were ignored when the farms were built. So in many ways, uh, this is exactly as you say. This is a an rural an urban rural divide uh, both philosophically but also in terms of the of the burden of the whole of the whole scheme at a meeting of Canada's premiers about two weeks ago now as you alluded to earlier saskatchewan premier mo new brunswick premier higgs and premier ford announced a collaboration to develop small modular reactors or smrs this is a continuation of government driving energy policy is there a way for government to take a step back and to let the market drive energy policy and how do you think that that could be implemented there's a way but the likelihood of any government going there seems to be remote. Even those governments that promote themselves as as small government, market-loving governments don't go there with respect to electricity. I mean, the Ford government is a good example. The Ford government has made no serious moves towards making the Ontario power sector a genuinely free market. It's just not on the table. And so if they're not willing to, I mean, the, the liberals certainly were not, and the NDP are not oriented that way. So really, where are you going to go? So it seems to be that this, this approach in terms of, of the government having tight control over, over, over electricity policy will continue into the future. It's, it's, it's very difficult because the, the thing I think that matters to a lot of voters, of course, is cost. 
And so a government wants to be able to say, well, we're going to make sure the cost goes down. And in order to make sure cost goes down, you have to have tight control over it, which is ironic because it has been the tight control that has produced the, the, the very high prices in the first place. But once you're in this pickle, you're, it's very difficult to get out in a way that's politically tenable. It requires a government with a whole lot of courage, and uh, those are rare. So I guess that's going to be my my final question here is even though we're far out from a provincial election at this point, it sounds like politics has been played by multiple sides for multiple years. If voters are listening to a politician or an elected official talk about energy policy, what's the thing that they should be listening for? Is there an honest truth that we haven't heard that if somebody came up and said that that would light a light for you and all of a sudden you would think that's someone I could support? Uh, well, let's try this. Um, one sign of a, of a genuine market approach is for a politician to say, we're going to a market approach, and that means we don't know how much your power is going to cost. It might go down, it might go up. We don't know because we don't control it anymore. Now, that takes guts, but that's the sign that the government's not going to you know, have this tight fist over, over what happens. Right, right. And so would that include, just as a, as a final question, would that include possibly scrapping the Ontario Energy Board? As I know that the argument was that they set the rates. Well, yes. Yeah, so the Ontario Energy Board is part and parcel of this whole regime whereby governments, by various means, set so many things, including prices. So in a way, yes, yes. Here, here's the ideal, I think, the ideal situation. You would have a government-owned and built transmission corridor, transmission system, you know, a way to send power from A to B. And then that would be it. Then you'd have private producers and private consumers. And because the stuff you're sending through this pipeline is the same stuff, you can contract with anybody to sell your stuff to them. And it doesn't matter, you know, which actual bits of energy you pull out of the, of the, of the pipeline because people are, are pulling out and sending it, right? So th that would enable these private transactions to happen on, on either ends of, these, of this transmission system. And you wouldn't have any interference with how the energy was produced and how it was consumed and what the price was, you could you could contract as you saw fit in a way that 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 was competitive, um, that that provided producers with profits and provided consumers with the best price. If you don't have that, then you've got something else, and it it is the variations on the something else that has caused all the trouble. And hopefully that trouble subsides in the near future. Professor Party, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks. Once again, that was Professor Bruce Party from Queen's University. We will continue our discussion with Ontario Green Party leader, MPP Mike Schreiner. Our second guest today is Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party and the first Green MPP ever elected to Queen's Park in 2018. For close to a decade, MPP Schreiner has been a leader in Ontario politics, being a champion on issues such as campaign finance reform, as well as advocating for the Guelph community on matters such as protecting Guelph's drinking water from local quarries, 
He has led successful policy campaigns to push the provincial government to fund the experimental lakes area, protect local food supplies by restricting the use of pesticides, support small business by increasing market access for local craft breweries, and fight climate change by putting a price on carbon pollution. Thank you, MPP Schreiner, for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Brody. Uh, Happy to be on. So let's get right into it. Earlier this year, Premier Ford announced that he would be repealing the Green Energy Act. As the leader of the Green Party in Ontario and the first Green MPP elected in Ontario's history, what were your thoughts when you heard this announcement? Well, a huge step backwards for Ontario. I mean, Ontario has been, you know, a leader in bringing in renewable energy. And unfortunately, the previous government bought a little bit of renewable energy when the price was really high. Now that the price is really low, the Conservative government's getting out of the game. And I don't know anybody who thinks uh, winning investment strategies to buy high and sell low, but that's exactly what's happening in Ontario. The other concern I have is that we know the global investors, according to a recent uh, study by Bloomberg, uh, will be investing $322 billion each and every year over the next five years into clean energy projects. I want Ontario to attract that global investment so we can build companies here, create jobs here, and address the climate crisis all at the same time. So I think uh, this decision by the Ford government has significant economic risk uh, to the province because it's essentially telling global investors that Ontario is closed for business in the clean economy, which is the fastest growing sector of the economy. Also, do you mind just speaking to if you believe it will have an impact on Ontario's and by extension Canada's ability to meet our carbon emissions targets? Well, absolutely. I mean, we know that renewable energy is part of the solution. It's obviously not the only solution, uh, but it's a big chunk of the solution. And so um, the Ford government's, you know, not only canceling renewable energy contracts, but the canceling of the cap and trade program, the dismantling of the uh, climate action plan, uh, and a whole host of other decisions really sets Ontario back when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. I mean, just recently, the Auditor General essentially said the Conservatives' plan is made to fail it's a bogus plan. It's not going to achieve their targets. Uh, and at a time when we need to act urgently on the climate crisis, this is a huge step backwards. And it, um, and like I said, it, it presents a lot of risk to Ontario. I mean, what's it say to people that the government of Ontario is not going to honor contracts? So even if, even if you're not a supporter of renewable energy or you don't think we need to act on climate change, which I would completely agree with, disagree with those positions, um, just the idea that we have a government coming in and ripping up contracts like that presents so much reputational risk to Ontario uh, and and um, just across our entire economy. The decision to scrap the 29 wind turbines that were nearing completion in Chrysler, Ontario earlier this week, I know that decision was announced, and they announced it saying that it was because of the at-risk bat populations that were nearby. Obviously, some would argue this shows their commitment in some way to to the environment or preserving species that are at risk. So what what would your response be to that? Well, I think that argument's a red herring. Uh, you know, there's been other others have pointed out that the company has made uh, mitigation measures to uh, minimize effects on bat and bird populations. A lot of people who are opposed to wind energy cite uh, concerns around bird and bat populations 
population. But the bottom line is, is more birds are killed every year by cats, by buildings, by vehicles, than by wind turbines. So if you're, if that is your real concern, then we need to be, you know, looking at the the issues that cause the greatest concern. I mean. Are we going to start telling people they can't let their cats outside? Are we going to start saying we have to put bird uh, mitigation measures in all of our buildings, which I would argue we should, and we have to start looking at ways to, in which vehicular traffic mitigate bird kill as well? And to your point, I know that the canceling of those wind turbines in the you know southern Ottawa region, that's going to cost $200 million. So it comes with a, a hefty price tag as well. So there is an economic cost. Yeah, and the price tag may even be higher than that because you know we had estimates that canceling renewable energy contracts would cost $231 million, and that was before they announced uh, the cancellation of this contract because we know they've ripped uh, turbines out of the ground in Prince Edward County and now in the Ottawa region. And so um, I think the cost will escalate. That's yet to be determined. But that $231 million figure was actually uh, publicly available before the cancellation of the of the contracts in the auto region were announced. Right. So I want to get your response to a few of the criticisms that, that we've heard about the Act and reasons why cancelling the Act was a, a good policy decision, maybe if you wouldn't mind responding to some of them. So the first one that we've heard made a couple times, especially by the provincial government, is that many blame the Green Energy Act for increasing the costs of electricity rates to rate payers. Is this something you agree with? Well, first party, I should say that while I support renewable energy, I um, have been critical of certain elements of the Green Energy Act. And as we maybe go through our conversation here, I can point out some of the reasons um, I've been critical of the Green Energy Act, the primary one being that it was focused more on corporate interests rather than community interests. And we can get into that, but I want to answer your question first. So there is no doubt renewable energy has contributed to increasing electricity prices, but if you actually look at the global adjustment, which is the portion of the bill that's been rising rapidly, the costs of rebuilding nuclear plants are far outweigh uh, the cost of renewable energy in terms of the increase in, in that. The bringing in of natural gas plants, a higher contributor as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are other elements that have had a bigger impact on rising energy prices than renewable energy has. And as a matter of fact, moving forward, when the billions will be put into rebuilding the Darlington nuclear plant, you know, estimates are that's going to probably double the amount of money we pay for nuclear energy. So you're going to see a significant increase in in electricity prices driven primarily by uh, rebuilding nuclear plants and renewable energy is actually though it has had an impact on prices there's no doubt about it it's been a much smaller impact than what's oftentimes reported in the media. I wanted to get your perspective on the announcement that Ford was going to be working with the premiers of Saskatchewan and New Brunswick on these small nuclear plants in order to try to offset some of our emissions. Is that something that you think is a right policy moving forward or do you think it, it could it, it sounds like you think it possibly could still increase rates for rate payers moving forward 
Yeah, so at this point, uh, that's unproven technology, and most of the analysis I've seen is that while they're uh, less capital intensive than building the large nuclear reactors like we see at Darlington, Pickering, and Bruce, the actual um, per unit costs are higher. And so until I see numbers that suggest that um, those small nuclear reactors could lower costs, I'm going to remain skeptical. I mean, the bottom line is, is we have proven technologies right now, water power, wind, solar, biogas, biomass, tidal isn't applicable to Ontario, but another another form of renewable power. There's a lot of proven technologies out there that we can implement right now at a lower cost. So I'm not suggesting in any way that we shut down Ontario's nuclear reactor. Sometimes people accuse me of that. We should, we should operate our existing reactors to end of life. We certainly should be, you know, looking at and considering all forms of emission-free technology. So I'm not going to single out one or the other. But as we do that evaluation, we need to look at criteria like reliability, cost, flexibility, and how proven the technology is. And right now, there's a lot of other technologies that are much more proven than the small reactors. So to get to your point about corporate interests, I know one other comment that has been made previously about the Green Energy Act was that it continued Ontario's tradition of being aggressively involved in driving energy policy. Uh, some have advocated for a more market-driven approach, but something that seems to be consistent across the board on on a criticism of the Green Energy Act was that it kind of created a a special opportunity or a special deal for corporations in the energy field and industry. Can you give us a little bit of your perspective why you think it was maybe too focused on corporate interests? Yeah, I mean, first of all, one of the big opportunities that renewable energy presents to us is not only that it's clean and renewable and can help address the climate crisis, it can also uh, help address economic uh, inequities in our society. It's the most democratic form of energy generation. So if you think over the last you know 150 years or so, energy generation has been highly concentrated in, you know, to a few multinational oil and gas corporations or nuclear facilities. It's been very centralized. And what's great about renewable energy, it's very decentralized. And so you can have lots of, you know, farmers and small businesses and entrepreneurs and, you know, communities and municipalities can be a lot of small players in the renewable energy sector. And so one of the, I think, the huge mistakes the previous Liberal government made was most of the contracts, particularly the big wind contracts, were signed with multinational corporations. And um, I think that contributed to some of the anger and opposition you see in particularly many rural communities. Uh, For example, I met with, you know, farmers in Melanchthon Township north of Shelburne, so maybe an hour and a half north of Toronto. And they had formed a small company. In some cases, uh, there were co-ops formed of like local residents, particularly in this case farmers, who bid on the contracts to actually not only host but own the wind turbines in their region. And instead, the contract went to some multinational corporation. And and you know, coincidentally, and who knows if there's a correlation here, but a lot of those corporations made heavy donations to the to the government or to the the Liberal Party, and so I don't know if that had an influence in those decisions or not, like, you know, but, but it is coincidental. And so 
you know, you can understand why people would be angry. It's like, you know what? We want to own these turbines. We don't want some foreign entity. And oftentimes, you know, one company will install them and then sell it off to another company. And so you don't even sometimes know who you're dealing with uh, from, from a community perspective. And so if you contrast that to the way countries like Denmark and Germany have brought forward renewable energy, so Denmark requires a minimum 20% local ownership before they approve any renewable energy project to ensure that you have that local ownership, local buy-in, but still having some flexibility so you can mobilize capital from larger corporate interests, which can be very important as well. Uh, and in the case of Germany, almost 50% of renewable energy projects are, are owned by local, by individual German citizens, oftentimes through cooperatives. And so I think if Ontario had taken the time to roll out um, the Green Energy Act in a way that really put community interest first, put local ownership first, you know, finally towards the end of the program, uh, there was a focus on indigenous nations, uh, which I thought was a good move. And so unfortunately, a lot of the 750 projects that the Conservatives canceled, a lot of those were with indigenous uh, ownership. And so that was a real disappointment because I think, you know, the government, you know, somewhat to its credit, finally started listening to criticism from people like me that it needed to have a more uh, local focused approach and an approach that partnered with indigenous peoples as well. And so you started seeing that in, you know, in the latter part of the rollout of the program. And so unfortunately, by the time those contracts started coming into place, those were the ones that conservatives actually canceled. Right, right. And that was going to be my next question, because I know at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario conference earlier in September, the premier did a speech in which he said, by cancelling this act, I'm kind of returning the voice of municipalities to be able to have a, a say in this, which is interesting because as you bring up with these cooperatives that I was not aware about before, that's not a narrative you hear often. What you hear often is how opposed the communities were to some of these uh, energy projects going in their area. So it's interesting to hear that they were bidding on having the project in their home community and hosting it there. But do you think that the criticism that it did not allow municipalities and local players to have enough of a veto on these uh, projects, do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, I would say yes and no. So uh, I think it would be problematic if we gave municipalities uh, outright veto on provincial energy decisions because then I think it would be hard almost to put any energy facility in because a lot of times people say, oh, you know, put the nuclear plant somewhere else or put the gas plant somewhere else, put the wind turbine somewhere else. Um, but I do think that having much more uh, local uh, involvement and local decision-making is part of the process. So, you know, the government, I would suggested a number of potential ideas around, like, having uh, pre-zoned areas for renewable energy. Um, and so it's like, okay, these are, these are okay areas and these are not okay areas. Within the okay areas, giving municipalities you know, more control around how the, how the project would roll out, where it's located, things like that. There, there's, I think there's a solution somewhere in the middle um, rather than saying, okay, we're just going to give you an outright veto or we're just going to impose it on you and you have no say whatsoever. If you had local ownership components to the requirements of rolling out projects, um, it would be, I think, much easier to have uh, willing hosts, so to speak. 
there would be local ownership, local economic benefits, more local job creation, uh, because we should see this as an opportunity not only to build out renewable energy, but also as a local economic development opportunity, particularly in rural communities. Right, right, because these were some of the communities hardest hit by rising rates for electricity costs and things like that. Yeah, well, partly because a lot of people in in rural communities have to eat with electricity because they don't have natural gas lines, and so electric heat is very expensive in Ontario, and and obviously the increased cost of electricity prices, you know, rural residents bore the brunt of that, and then you combine that with a lot of the upgrades that had to happen in the infrastructure of our distribution systems, and that disproportionately affected rural communities as well because they pay higher uh, distribution costs. So one of the things I'd advocated for was actually changing the distribution cost formula to make it less onerous on uh, rural residents. As we move forward into the future of Ontario's energy policy, do you see a big component of this as trying to break up some of these large kind of corporate interests that have dominated this field for a long period of time? And if so, how would we go about doing that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, first of all, one of the things I've been calling on the government to do is to conduct a public independent analysis of the present and future costs of all sources of electricity generation so we can make an informed decision. One of the things I think electricity policy in Ontario, not just the current government or the previous government, but the previous governments before that, have been driven oftentimes by mostly political considerations and not by just sort of an evidence-based analysis. And so I would like to see that evidence-based analysis uh, because, you know, there's a lot of talk. We could be buying Quebec water power, for example, at a significantly lower cost than almost any source of electricity in Ontario right now. You know, if you look at the cost curves on nuclear versus renewables, you're seeing nuclear costs go up and renewable costs going down. But we also need to make sure that, you know, we have a reliable supply of power because obviously wind and solar are intermittent sources of power. Uh, what role can more water power play in Ontario? So obviously, you know, Niagara Falls was the original first big renewable energy project in Ontario. And, you know, there's more, more opportunities for water power. Uh, what role can biodigesters and biomass and those forms? So it's, it's really sitting down and, and doing an independent evidence-based analysis of the system and then coming up with what are the, what are the cleanest, most cost-effective solutions. So I've got two final questions for you here. And the first one is, how do you see this announcement of repealing the Green Energy Act fitting into the larger picture of the Ford government's environmental policies, ranging from things to Bill 66, the bill that was initially looking at opening up the green belt, possibly, trying to axe the environmental commissioner? What's the large thrust of the Ford's environmental policy? Yeah, so this has been probably one of the, you know, the most anti-environmental premier we've had, you know, at least since the 1920s. And so it's been very disappointing. From my perspective, environmental protections are not red tape. And the premier has consistently now been attacking regulations that really are about protecting public health. 
and the environment as red tape. And so, you know, we've seen a gutting of the Endangered Species Act. We've seen changes to the growth plan to facilitate sprawl. We've seen changes that make it easier and cheaper to pollute. We've seen a weakening of our aggregate resource regulations that threaten water. As a matter of fact, such a big threat that the Associated Municipalities of Ontario actually came to the committee I'm on and asked for indemnity clauses for municipal councillors around their legal obligations to protect water because of some of the changes the government's made. You know, we've seen a canceling of the tree planting program, which is essential to combating climate change. We've seen a cut to the flood prevention program at a time when we're seeing increasing amounts of flooding due to extreme weather events caused by climate change. Canceling the energy conservation programs that help people save money by saving energy by retrofitting their buildings. Cancellation of all the EV programs help electrify our transportation system. So it's been a sustained rollback of environmental protections and you know the sad thing about it is is that's not part of the conservative legacy like if you think about it bill davis was the premier that brought in the ministry of the environment even even mike harris brought in the whole ontario legacy project to expand the ontario park system and brought in things like the oak ridges marine conservation act so this is a significant departure even from conservative tradition from my opinion right and just finally obviously this is coming at a time when there's actually a lot of mobilization especially from young people on the issue of climate change we've seen the climate marches here at Queen's Park. Uh, Just as a final note, for young people that see this record and think this is not the direction Ontario should be going, how can they try try to change what's going on? Well, I mean, first of all, the Fridays for Future events, like, keep keep doing it, make them bigger and louder. You know, it was great that Greta Thunberg's was Times Person of the Year, so I think it, she's really inspiring and mobilizing a whole generation, and so we've seen that at Queen's Park. In my writing in Guelph, uh, the Fridays for Future events are well attended, and so keep the pressure up, but also keep pressure up on your municipal councillors, on your individual MPPs, um, and I'll give you an example. You referenced Bill 60 so Schedule 10 of Bill 66 would have opened the Greenbelt up for development and undermined the Clean Water Act. And I was proud to say I was the first MPP to raise the issue uh, in question period and really start working with a lot of groups to mobilize opposition to it. And because there was a broad coalition of farmers, municipal councillors, environmentalists, citizens groups, all speaking out, the government had to backtrack on it and remove Schedule 10 from Bill 66. And a lot of that was was driven by people power saying you know what we don't want the green belt open for development we want water protected and so citizen mobilization can make a big difference and so i'd encourage young people to keep doing that and look for allies in the environmental movement uh, among farmers among citizens groups your local municipal councils build those broad coalitions to demand action Perfect. A call to action for sure. Thank you, MPP Schreiner, for joining us again today. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the Ford government's repeal of the Green Energy Act and the future of Ontario's energy policy. Today's show was produced by Hobble Chen, Brody Longmere, and R.A. Ansel. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily represent the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www. 
beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.